Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Tuesday, May 17th. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, presented by Steamfitters Local 602. Learn how Steamfitters can benefit your business at steamfitters-602.org. Today, there's a lot going on at Metro, mounting train delays, the GM stepping down last night, and real worries from riders about whether their commute is safe. We talk with NBC4's transportation reporter Adam Tuss about whether heads rolling at the top will really change anything at the transit system that he says is plagued by a history of failure. It gets tiresome when you hear over and over again, we need to change the safety culture of the transit agency, and these things continue to happen. And cue the nostalgia. Actress Judy Garland's blue gingham dress that she wore in The Wizard of Oz is at the heart of a legal battle between the surviving family members of a Catholic university priest and the school itself. We talked to WTOP's Mike Marillo about the costume controversy. It's unclear right now if it was given to him personally or the school, and that's really what the basis of this lawsuit is. Thanks for joining us. I'm Megan Cloherty. And I'm Luke Garrett. The hits keep coming for Metro. And after the debacle we told you about yesterday, when it discovered that half of its train operators needed to be recertified, further delaying the green and yellow lines. Now, GM Paul Wiedefeld has decided to retire early, and the chief operating officer, Joe Leader, has also stepped down. So we're bringing in NBC Forest transportation reporter Adam Tuss to give us the skinny here and answer the question with all of these changes, is Metro safe to use and how will this change at the top affect your trip, if at all? Adam and I go way back, so I have to thank you for being here to start with. Be on the pod. Happy to be on the pod. Thank you. It really seems like every day there's something negative coming out of the transit agency. So I wanted to get your take on the changes at the top with Wiedefeld and leader heading out, were they forced out? I think what's happening here is that the writing was on the wall. And while everyone's saying the right things, that no, they weren't forced out, that no, this was on their own terms, so on and so forth. I think uh, Paul Wiedefeld knew that the time was now to, to leave the transit agency. So they have to appoint an interim general manager, Andy Off, who is now for all intents and purposes in control. And Paul is essentially a lame duck at this point. So For Paul, this was just, you know what, all this stuff is happening. Let me step aside. Let Andy off get in here, make some changes before Randy Clark comes in here. With the Joe Leader thing, uh, what a lot of people don't know is that Joe Leader was in the running for the general manager. He wanted to be the next general manager of Metro, and he obviously didn't get it. So, you know, Paul leaves. Joe is one of Paul's guys, and it's kind of like a package deal. In in the transit industry, especially places like this, when the organization is this large, and there's so many managers. It's, it's often like sports teams, right? You have a coach and an assistant coach and then a training coach and so on and so forth. Well, that's kind of like what Metro is. And so when your guy leaves, a lot of times you leave with the guy and then a new guy comes in and he brings his guys. Yeah. So that's a lot of what's going on right now. Right. And we've been hearing a lot about culture change at Metro. In the last five years, we've seen safety report after safety report come out. And so with these two top leaders leaving, does this show a, a culture change might happen at Metro? Is that what that shows? Or does that not really get to the heart of it? You know, Luke, in the years that I've been covering Metro, the term culture change has been used over and over again. And this goes back well over a decade. 
I've said this a number of times over the last week, but if you go back to the last three general managers, main general managers of the Metro system, John Cato left under an NTSB investigation because of the red line crash. Rich Sarles left under an NTSB investigation because of the deadly L'Enfant Plaza smoke incident. Paul Wiedefeld is leaving under an NTSB investigation because of the derailment of the 7,000 series rail cars. And at every one of those general managers and every step along the way, we heard there needs to be a culture change. Well, what's Randy Clark's legacy going to be? You know, he's going to come in here. Is he going to be leaving under an NTSB investigation someday? Is he going to be talking about culture change? Because quite frankly, it, it gets tiresome when you hear over and over again, we need to change the safety culture of the transit agency. And these things continue to happen. But I will say this, that is the problem, that there, there needs to be a better focus, uh, a, a more direct line, a better understanding of what needs to get done. And if you just dissect the 7000 series issue, think about that Paul Wiedefeld's managers who knew that these rail cars were derailing, never told him about it. And he continues to say to this day that he was never told about that issue with the 7000 series rail cars. So that in and of itself is a huge problem. Speaking to safety, you spoke with the board chair of Metro, Paul Smedberg, about it. And of course, everybody wants it to be safe. I mean, I think riders beyond, I mean, is there a word beyond exasperated that you're just constantly hearing about this? But I mean, the news <laughs> is not confidence inspiring. We can put it that way. What did Smedberg yeah. have to say about all of these recent safety issues? Well, he is saying the right things. I mean, he's saying, of course, Metro is safe. And I'm not here to tell you it is safe or it isn't safe. I'm not here to, you know, make you feel confident riding it. I'm not here to tell you you shouldn't ride it. I think every rider has to come up with their own level of safety and own belief and feelings about if they think it's safe enough to get on the system. Um, And certainly for riders who have been involved in some of these incidents, I can't imagine a lot of people who are on that smoke filled train at L'Enfant Plaza really trust, you know, the metro system. I can't imagine anyone who was around that red line crash trusts metro. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anyone who was on that derailed 7000 series rail car in a tunnel outside the, uh, the Arlington Cemetery Station is probably a little skeptical. And I've interviewed some of them um, since that incident happened in October. Uh, I think you have to make your own decision. Uh, Listen, I have said it over and over again. When Metro works, there's nothing better. There is no better way to get around our region. It, it, It beats anything, hands down. But when it doesn't work, it's really bad. There is no in between. Right. And so maybe trying to paint out a timeline for when these improvements will be made and it'll be the best thing ever. You know, <laughs> when yeah. can we expect these improvements? You know, we're hearing that, you know, Randy Clark is going to take the helm in late summer. We're hearing that these recertifications have to happen, you know, in the next two months. Maybe the 7,000 series will come back this summer. Are these proper expectations? Yeah, so I, I don't think we should diminish things that have happened with the Metro system as well. They have rebuilt platforms. Uh, they have rebuilt miles and miles of track. They have upgraded things like Wi-Fi. When you go underground in tunnels now, your cell phone works. That used to not be the case. There are serious upgrades that have happened with the Metro system. They're putting in new turnstiles. They're constantly thinking of technologies and Apple Pay and Smart Pay and things that can work. So I don't want to diminish the things that have happened. It's just that the failures are sometimes so grand that they overshadow the other things. And if you just take the 7,000 series rail cars, for example, Metro has spent billions of dollars of taxpayer money. And this is another issue that you know people get upset about Metro about is why are they getting so much money when we could potentially have a bunch of lemon rail cars that we've spent billions of dollars on? Right. Uh, 
And so you know, we don't even know when they're going to come back. So I would love to tell you that the 7,000 series rail cars are going to be back in a month. I did ask the board chair today, you know, what's the timeline on those? But nobody has a timeline right now. There is no firm plan for when that's going to happen. We've also been hearing from riders that they're seeing a lot of petty crime on Metro, teens jumping those turnstiles, kind of running amok in the stations. Is there any call for more Metro police enforcement? Or it harkens back to the same idea. I talked to D.C. police and they say, you know, when you get robbed, it's not necessarily going to change your life, but it's going to make you feel really unsafe. Even if it's not the train that you're on that's crashing, if you don't feel comfortable when you're standing on that platform, are you going to use the service? I'm wondering if there's any conversation about that. Well, the fact of the matter is in the district, it is now decriminalized to jump the gates. Fare evasion is decriminalized in D.C. That is something that was passed by the D.C. Council. So I got an email yesterday about it. Someone was like, why aren't they stopping the people from jumping over the fare gates? Well, because guess what? The metro uh, station operators and station managers, they're told not to get involved with that. If a bus operator is picking somebody up and somebody gets on the bus and they say, I'm not paying you the fare. The bus operator is told to stay out of that conflict or else, you know, they have seen that assaults against station managers and bus operators and train operators have gone up. Hmm. And with transit police, you know, one of the things that you'll hear about them is that they can't be everywhere at once. If you think about Metro, it is kind of an impossible task to police. It's moving geography. It's not like it's like a demonstration and we know the demonstration is going to be here. You know, something could happen at this station. So. I mean, I guess you could have more police riding, whatever. And, and actually, they have a new police chief now, Michael Lanzallo, who has said he is going to change some of their tactics. He's going to be you know, making police more visible. He wants uh, you know, more police out there and, and about. He said they're also going to look at the trends a lot more. And where there is a problem, that's where the transit police are going to be showing up. It's something that he called problem-oriented policing. Will it work for Metro? That's yet to be seen. What we do know is that robberies are up, pickpockets are up, that those kind of things, assaults are up. So uh, crime is definitely not trending in the right direction on the transit agency. You do have to wonder also, guys, how much the pandemic is playing in all of this. Totally. As people you know, try to get back on the system. Mm. And so we've mentioned you know, the CEO, the COO. We've talked about riders. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, the people who work at Metro, the operators and the drivers. You know, we saw a statement come out from the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 689 today saying, hey, look, this recertification problem is not our problem. We weren't told, you know, to get recertified like here. Like it's not on them to get exactly. recertified? Huh. How have they been dealing with all these consequential issues and problems when Metro is really just trying to get riders back? The union's claim is that Metro management shut down all those safety recertifications because they didn't want to bring people into the same room. You would have to have 20 or 30 people in the same room. And this was happening at the very beginning of COVID that Metro management said, you know what, we're not going to bring all these people together and protect our train and bus operators from getting sick with one another. I asked, well, why would you have to do that in person? Is that something you definitely had to do in person? You couldn't set up a Zoom call. Uh, or something like that to get recertified. And they said it is actually something that you do need to be in person for to be looking at, to, to get expressions and, and make sure that train and bus operators are getting the, the point. Right. Um, safety certification, just so you know, this is real world stuff that they're being taught. It's about like emergencies. If there's a brake malfunction on a train, if a door is opening on the wrong side of a train, what do you do? And they're tested on that. And not only that, they're taken out to their testing facility out in Landover where they have all this testing equipment and they're put through those tests. Like they'll get on a train or a bus and, and they'll just throw a problem at them and see if they can fix it. 
So this is kind of a, a hands-on real-world training that they're supposed to get. But the union's claim is that Metro management stopped that a long time ago when COVID started, never restarted it, and is now kind of throwing them under the bus. So the bad blood that has existed between the union and management is kind of resurfacing here a little bit, and that's what you're starting to see. There's too many topics to cover on Metro, so I feel like we did a decent job, Adam. Thank you for joining us. Are you headed to the barber now with your son is my question. I, you know, um, all I can say to all the dads out there with uh, five and six year old boys is be prepared for the day when he decides he's going to cut his own hair. Um, Just right because... in the front. Just a huge section right, right up front. And set of clippers ready to go because I gave him a buzz cut right after that. When we had to start <laughs> the picture is so cute. Oh, Deacon. Oh, Deacon. Keeping you on your toes. I don't have enough going on in my life. You know, I need to have my son cut his hair. <laughs> At least it wasn't your hair. You know, that would really be. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for being here, Adam. We appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And after the break, there's no place like home. But the question over who has the rights to actress Judy Garland's costume from The Wizard of Oz is going before a judge. If you want to save money and grow profits on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC, or refrigeration project, go with the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. You can trust the experience of its workforce, members who have expertise in heating, air conditioning, refrigeration, and process piping to deliver work that's on time and on budget. For a partner you can trust who's mutually focused on your bottom line and to schedule, contact Steamfitters Local 602 at steamfitters-602.org. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602, changing lives. Thanks for listening to the DMV Download Podcast. Megan and I do this show all on our own, and we appreciate you making us a part of your day. If you like the show or have a suggestion, let us know by leaving a review or rating the show. Both of those things help us get better and help us grow our audience. Thanks again. Lions and tigers in lawsuits. Oh, my. You may have heard about a legal squabble between Catholic University and members of a Wisconsin family over who has the rights to one of the blue checkered dresses that Judy Garland wore in The Wizard of Oz. We now know when the tug of war over a valuable piece of Hollywood history will be decided. WTOP's Mike Murillo spoke with members of the family who say that the dress belongs to them and not the university in D.C., where it was discovered laying on top of a faculty mailbox decades after it went missing. So, Mike, we all know this dress from The Wizard of Oz. I guess the auction house that plans to sell the dress for Catholic University says that Judy Garland wore the dress during the scene where she heads to the Wicked Witch of the West's castle. So tell us how this all started and how this dress kind of came to be at Catholic University. And Megan, I like the intro, by the way. But <laughs> but as we get into this, yes, I've never looked at so many court documents about a dress before in my life. But this is, you know, <laughs> what this case has brought to us. Um, but yes, so we had this dress that was found in a bag above uh, some cabinets at Catholic University's drama department. Well, that department was headed for years. It was the director, founder, was Father Gilbert Hartke. And Looking up Gilbert Hartke, I didn't know his history until I looked it up. This guy was a big player in the drama and fine art scene in D.C. He helped hmm. revitalize Ford's theater. He brought the National Players in, which is a, a group that's now based out of Olney. He did a lot to the area, so he's he's well-known. Back when he passed away, he had a full-page Washington Post obituary. Oh, wow. Not many people get those. Dang. So if you kind of think about the importance there of this individual. Yeah. But anyway, so this dress was found. It was presented to him. It's unclear right now if it was given to him personally or the school. And that's really what the basis of this lawsuit is, saying that the dress belongs to the family because they say 
Mercedes McCambridge gave this dress and pre- or presented it uh, to Father Hartke. And so you have the family saying this dress belongs to us because it was presented to him because he helped her battle substance abuse. Oh. Um, so he was saying that this was kind of a personal relationship here. He helped her through the years. So she wanted to give this to him to say thanks. And the school is saying that, well, he took a vow of poverty as a father and he worked for the drama program and it was presented while at the school. So they're saying it belongs to us. So now the big question is for a judge, who does this dress belong to? Apparently, Bonhams in L.A. is saying it could get anywhere between $800,000 to a million dollars, maybe more. Um, Do we know what Catholic University is planning to do with that money? They say it's going to go to the drama department, but essentially the school will get the money. But you have the family here and I can get into that a bit, too. I talked to the nephew of the woman who's filed this lawsuit and his name is Tony Lehman, and he is speaking on behalf of the family and essentially saying here they want to have a say in what happens with this dress, saying that for years this has been a lore in the family. They've heard about this dress, didn't know what happened to it, and that you know now it's been found. There's been no conversation with them about what's next for this dress. And the, Judy Garland's, you know, everybody's seen her famous ruby red slippers at the Smithsonian. If you haven't seen them, go check them out. But um, there are many iconic costumes in the Smithsonian. Does the Harkey family plan to donate it or do they say it all? If, I mean, are they planning to sell it? The nephew who talked to me said that he would be OK with that. That's one of the options they have out there. They're not sure. They want to honor his legacy, he says. So he said we don't rule out sending it to somewhere like the Smithsonian. So, of course, when they have ownership, who knows what will happen. But that's mm-hmm. what he was telling me. And so, you know, the person in question here was a Dominican priest um, who took a vow of poverty. So does that mean he couldn't own anything and that's why the family has no, you know, link to this dress? Is that really the the crux of the argument? Yeah, that's, of course, one of the arguments here. Another piece of evidence that the Catholic University lawyers are presenting is an article from 1973 in the Washington Post that talks about the actress giving the dress to Father Hartke. And in it, it says Hartke wants the dress to be displayed at Hartke Theater on the campus. Another reason they say the school is a rightful owner here. But the family disagrees with that, saying that there had been discussions in the family with Father Hartke, during which he said the dress belonged to him. Mm. So what's next now? A judge decides who owns this thing. It's next week? Yep. A hearing coming up in the case this coming Monday, May the 23rd. Ahead of that, the judge issuing a temporary restraining order in the case. That essentially says the school and the auction house can't do anything with the dress until the judge hears from both sides. The interesting thing here is that hearing comes a day before the scheduled auction. So the auction's future is uncertain right now, though a lawyer for the school says that if the judge rules in their favor, there's a chance the auction can take place as planned. Such an interesting story. I mean, not only the ownership piece of it, but just the fact that this is such an iconic thing that we've all seen that movie. And I don't know. It's just really interesting to me. It is. We'll see what happens with it, and we'll stay on top of it. Mike Murillo following it for us. Thank you. You got it. And before we go, we had to give you an update on our friend Thomas's house search. He works here with us at WTOP as a producer and editor. And Thomas joins us in studio right now. Yes. Thomas, the people want to know. It's exciting. Did you find a place to live? Yeah, we did. Okay, tell me about it. I say we because there's a little bit of a curveball. I was very intent on getting my own place going into the search. Mm. Right. That was a soul-crushing experience. (laughs) One I joined you on, honestly, because I would look on Craigslist and try to find Thomas places, and it was tough, man. It was tough. It was almost impossible. 
Because he was looking for an affordable place for the, in the and he DC didn't even area. want a bedroom. Yeah. We're just reminding people if you hadn't heard before. He literally was looking for a studio under I think fifteen hundred. Isn't that right? Yeah, something. Yeah, and you couldn't find it. It's yeah. I mean, it whale. exists uh, kind of, but the quality is incredibly low. And then yeah. you got utilities and everything. Overall, it was just. And we gave it our best shot. I yeah. mean, that was months of searching. We tried. Okay, really so hard. so what happened? So I come home from touring the two places. I think we talked about some tours that were set up. In the last episode, so I come home not happy. It wasn't a good experience, and I talk with my existing roommates, and two of them uh, were planning to still live together, but they were welcoming of the idea of me joining them to go to another place, obviously cheaper and everything. So, right. so immediately, like that night, it was just it's such a vast difference with the search process of one person, three person. We go online. We find like two incredible, like super nice places for around a thousand combined each for rents, around <gasps> in a three thousand range. Amazing. Totally, totally. And the numbers back you up here in the DC area. Rent.com released a report, and it says that you know for a studio it's nineteen hundred, for one bedroom it's twenty four hundred, for a two bedroom it's thirty two hundred, and then for a three bedroom, which is the situation you're talking about, right. it's just thirty three hundred. So this thousand five hundred mark per bedroom cuts off at three bedrooms. And that's probably why y'all are able to find a good yeah. place. That's the X factor. If you guys are out there, you're struggling. Uh, the key is that you're, you know, you're gonna have to get some roommates. Right. Um, Unless you're buying, but then that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but this this new place is good. Got solar panels. Oh my gosh, it's got solar panels and that's- a yard. And a but, sauna and a pool. Yeah, it's and, got no. It doesn't have. <laughs> it does have a gigantic. I mean, you're making it sound amazing. Gigantic sunroom, a huge oh, sunroom. Oh, nice. Like it's like runs the whole length of the house. It's pretty sweet. Mm. And where it's is this place? Kind of it's in Alexandria. Ooh. Alexandria. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, congratulations, Thomas. Yes. Thomas. I mean, really, like that is so stressful when Ugh. you are looking and you can't find anything that fits. Man, I tell you, I tell you, it's a problem that I think a lot of people in this area. Are going through. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Well, yes. thank you for uh, telling us how you transcended this rent trend. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and bring this story to us. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that does it for us today. Thanks for joining us on the DMV Download, sponsored by Steamfitters Local 602. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. You can leave us a review and rate our show if you get the chance. We'd so appreciate it. And follow us on social media where we're posting content every day behind the scenes of our show. You can find out more about the podcast and become a VIP listener at dmvdownload.com. The DMV Download is a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, online at wtop.com, and on the WTOP News app. Have a great night, everyone. (laughs) 